0: Well, earlier this summer, last month, I had the opportunity to take an extended break from work. And it was lovely, but I could tell by the end that I was getting a little restless because I noticed that I was spending more time messing around on my phone than I really wanted to. Specifically, I found myself watching a whole bunch of seven to eight minute video clips from a TV show that I'd never even heard of before called Say Yes to the Dress. I'm not sure how I got sucked into watching these because if someone had described to me ahead of time what it was about and then asked me if I'd be interested, I'd have said no because the premise sounds pretty dull. An engaged woman needs a dress to get married in, she goes to a store to get one, end of story. But with this simple premise, Their producers and writers wring as much human drama from it as they possibly can in seven minutes. And I have to say, they do a fine job of it. At one level, of course, the drama is entirely manufactured. Uh, But it's also true that as with any cultural touchpoint, such as a wedding, there are some significant questions that get dredged up and require answers. I thought, once I realized I was spending this much time, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out and justify why I was doing it. So there's a ton of them, but I'll just touch on a few. Um, for one, a bride's choice of wedding garment is fraught with cultural significance. So a lot of brides are asking, how far can I break with tradition and still feel like a bride? Which aspect of myself, whether aspect of my body or my personality, or my values do I want to display, and which do I kind of want to cover? When the desires of different stakeholders in this decision, myself, my fiance, my family, my friends, are in conflict with what I should choose, who should I disappoint? And then ultimately, when all eyes turn toward me, what does it take to be able to stand confident And unashamed. And in this case, with this last question, I'd even say there is a hidden spiritual dynamic at work. Consider this framing A day is coming when I will appear before a great gathered throng and stand revealed in all my glory or lack thereof as I go to meet my beloved. Does that sound familiar? If you are hearing echoes from scripture about a day that is in the future for all of us, you're not wrong. God himself designed not only marriage but even weddings specifically to be a powerful analogy of Christ and the church. We, the church, are actually known as not the wife of Christ but the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride. And not only that, Scripture actually draws a connection between the wedding garment of the bride and the state of her soul. Symbolically, in Scripture, the wedding garment reflects our spiritual state. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, the bridegroom, takes care that his bride is presented without spot or wrinkle, at the end of time. Clean bridal robes represent the holiness that God himself shares with us. So everyone here today, male or female, old or young, married or single, has the same challenge as those brides on the reality TV show. We will come face to face with the one who loves us most, the God who is holy, 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 holy. And who we are and how we have conducted ourselves during our life will be fully revealed. And it's so wise to ask ourselves now that important question. When we present ourselves before God, will we be able to stand confident and unashamed? The good news is that the God who will judge us on that day desires above all things that we will acquit ourselves well on that joyous day. God himself is rooting for us and, in fact, has equipped us with all that we need to approach him with confidence. This morning's passage in First John speaks about some key ways we can cooperate with the work of God to prepare us for that day. So right at the beginning of this passage, you can look in your Bibles or in your service guides, In chapter 2, verse 28, we find these hopeful words. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So, this right here at the beginning is the first and most essential thing to remember abide in him. That is, abide in Jesus Christ. Now, abiding is technically an action verb, and there are some concrete things that we need to do to abide, but with apologies to grammar nerds, I also want us to think of this verb abide as a state of being. Here at Emmanuel, you'll find that we frequently emphasize that in the Christian life, there needs to be a very healthy dynamic between being and doing. For us human creatures being precedes doing. This is hinted at even in the way the writer John addresses us. We are little children. Before we do a thing, our identities are formed within our human communities. We are born as sons and daughters. In the world as originally created, no one needs to do a thing to earn a place in the family. From the moment of our conception, we have an identity that of beloved child. And that reality then can inform everything that we do. If we know ourselves to be a beloved son or daughter, that will affect what we do and how we go about doing it. And it's the same dynamic in the family of God. The writer John, writing to the church, calls us his little children because we are children of God. Now, there is a sense in which every single person in the whole world could be called a child of God. Every single person in the whole world was made in the image of God and is loved by God with a fatherly love. So it's okay to refer to anyone you meet as a child of God in a general way. But it's also true that every single person in the whole world was born estranged from God, separated from him, trapped in our sinful ways. We are all even called enemies of God. And so the way that John here is talking about children of God refers specifically to those who have been adopted back into his family, reconciled with him, living under his fatherly authority. John is not speaking then to everyone in the world. As a matter of fact, he talks about those in the world not being able to recognize the children of God But he's speaking to those who are already in Christ's family, and he tells us, as God's children, that the primary way that we prepare for the big day, that future day, when we meet Jesus, is to abide in Jesus, now, in the present. Now, how do we abide? What does that look like? There are actually lots of ways we can abide with Jesus and in Jesus. We can spend a lifetime learning about ways to abide in him. But today we're going to focus on just how the rest of this passage fleshes some of that out. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1 for a hint. I think there's a hidden command or instruction there. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It might seem a little goofy to call this a command since it's really kind of more an exclamation of wonder. Look, see what kind of wildly extravagant love the Father has given to you, to me, to us. And without going into all the technicalities of the original words and how they were translated, just know that even this translation is a little understated in English. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. John is really kind of gushing about the love that the Father gives. When he says, what kind of love is this? He's naming it as an exotic, otherworldly sort of love, something foreign to our ordinary human experience of love. And this love is not just given to us, it is lavished extravagantly upon us. The love of God is uniquely powerful. And it is uniquely his from him. And everyone to whom God gives this miracle love of God becomes a child of God. And God's seed, God's character, his fruitfulness, his power, his spirit abides in us. So marveling at the extraordinary love of God is one practical way of abiding in him. We can reflect on this daily, hourly. For those abiding in Jesus, there is literally no aspect of our existence that isn't touched and transformed by his love. We can think about all aspects of our existence and who we are that are touched and transformed by his love. The love of God transforms our identities. We become beloved children of God with his seed in us, fruitfully. The love of God transforms our purpose in life. We live to respond to his love by loving God and loving others, just like the sermon series title. And the love of God manifested in the life of Jesus actually makes it possible for us to live into our identities as sons and daughters as we were meant to and to do the things we were meant to do, lavishing love on others we can do this beyond anything in our own native power that we could do apart from him. So, marveling at the love of the Father is one mark of those who abide in Jesus. John gives lots of tests so we can know if we are in Christ. This is one of them marveling at the love of the Father. There's another mark that we blew past. Um, We'll circle back to verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So those who abide in Jesus marvel at the love of God, and those who abide in Jesus practice righteousness. In the original language of this text, the word we translate in English as practice means something like make or do. John is saying everyone who makes righteousness, everyone who does righteousness, is born of God. But I think the connotations that come to mind when we use that English word practice are really relevant and really helpful, meaningful. For example, my son Sam has had several opportunities to act in school theater productions, which he really enjoys. And often as his opening night approaches I'll ask how he's doing. How are you feeling about the big day? And Sam tells me that the factor that makes the biggest difference by far between an opening night where he's nauseous with nerves and one that he's kind of excited about is how much he has invested in practicing for the performance. He learned early on that when he has not put in the work to memorize all the lines and block his movements and rehearse, 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 he approaches opening night with dread. But when he has been practicing regularly and faithfully and steadily in an engaged and intentional way, his nerves are quite manageable, and opening night is kind of fun. Brothers and sisters, Holy scriptures tell us the same thing about the day of judgment. Our reception into eternal union with God does not depend on our performance. We will be received or rejected based on the work that Jesus did in our relationship to him, not on our own performance. However, the way we live our lives does make the difference between approaching that day with confidence or with an uncomfortable, nauseating sense of shame. This bears repeating. No human being other than Jesus is capable of a flawless performance. Perfection in righteousness is not attainable for us on this side of death. So the mark of the children of God is not our perfection in righteousness, but the mark of the children of God is our constant habitual, steady practice of righteousness. And this practice, this faithfully trying, rehearsing, leaning into righteousness, repenting from sin, practicing righteousness, does reveal whether or not we are abiding in Christ. John says it like this in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will B has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are God's children now, but the fullness, that perfection of what we will be, has not yet appeared. The spots and wrinkles of life soil our wedding dress now, but those who abide in Jesus now are purified by that certain hope that when we meet Jesus face to face and stand physically in the light and power of his physical presence, his light, his power will finally and completely perfect us on that day that future perfection is at work in us now as we practice righteousness. And so the children of God who have that hope before them, you can tell who they are because they are at work practicing righteousness. We do it imperfectly, but we do it daily. The lavish love of God is at work in our lives. The hope of seeing Jesus is at work in our hearts. And out of our eagerness for that day, We start practicing loving God, loving others, working out our identities as children of God. And at Jesus' second appearing, that work of purification he began at his first appearing will be completed in an instant. When we stand before him on that big day, we shall see him as he is in all his glory, in all his holiness, in all his purity. And seeing him, his glory completes our righteousness. On that day, we, his bride, will be cleansed forever from every spot and stain. And that is hope indeed. In the meantime, though, while we are practicing righteousness, John has a final tip in this passage for how to abide in Christ. You look at verse 7, he writes, Little children, let no one deceive you. What's he talking about? Well, at the time that John wrote these words, mid-first century, near modern-day Turkey, there were some people, some public people, who identified as Christians, who spoke as if they were children of God, but they were actually teaching against righteousness and teaching against the need to practice righteousness. And John is warning the true children of God not to be deceived by them. Do not be deceived by this idea that there's no call to practice righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of hate knowing that there are people that I need to watch out for. I don't like viewing people with suspicion, I think the world is polarized enough. I think people would benefit from listening more carefully and patiently to another with more kindness and more humility. At the same time, there is nothing kind or humble about refusing to identify lies as lies or identifying sin as sin. There is a life and death difference between the works of God and the works of the devil who opposes God. And there's nothing kind or humble about pretending that that's not the case. Specifically, some of the folks in John's day were teaching what the church has called Gnostic heresies. And that's kind of a fancy term that refers to the belief that uh, people are saved by affirming the divine light that's within the human soul, rather than being saved by the person and work of Jesus Gnosticism dismisses or discounts the importance of the body and deceives us into believing that we don't have to practice righteousness. Gnosticism asserts that there's no need to repent and turn away from evil deeds because we're good the way we are. Gnosticism, Gnosticism feeds on the idea that we have special knowledge that elevates us above having to concern ourselves with matters of righteousness. But this is kind of an appealing idea, this notion that I can kind of rely on what's inside, the goodness of my thoughts or feelings or intentions, and not have to fuss really about what I'm doing. And so these Gnostic ideas that were bubbling up in John's time, they've never really gone away. They just shift and morph through time, different places, different cultures, and are active even in our own time. Many, many people around us, people we know and love, for example, are taught that the most important thing in life is becoming who you truly are, and that anything that you need to do to become self-actualized, anything you need to do to act out who you are, cannot be wrong. Nothing you feel you need to do to express yourself can be sinful, is how this teaching goes. And this is a Gnostic type of idea. The idea that each of us has special knowledge about ourselves that only we possess, that no one else has access to, and that not even God can speak into. And then that's coupled with the idea that our bodies are primarily made to serve that special inner sense of self, that we do whatever we need to with our bodies in service of that higher plane of special knowledge. But these type of beliefs cut against the heart of the gospel and against the law of God's love. It's true that I know more about what I think and feel and want than you do, but it's not true that I have more access to those things and the knowledge of who I am than God does. We don't know even the deceitfulness of our own heart, Scripture says, Divine knowledge about who I am originates with the God who made me in his image and called me to be his daughter. And it's not true that it is okay for me to trespass against the law of God with my body in the name of expressing who I am. The law of God is love. And that love is revealed in the person of Jesus who fulfilled The laws of God. The fundamental call that we have to love God, to love others, to be a blessing to the nations is incompatible with the sins of our bodies. I cannot abide in Jesus while habitually indulging myself in the works of the devil. That is, any deed that opposes the character of Christ and the law of the God who is love. Now, these are sobering words, particularly if, as you hear them, you are troubled by an awareness of your own sin and shame. The experience of shame, that feeling that makes us want to shrink back, is one of the most painful that human beings can suffer, a sense of humiliation that begins with the awareness that we have done something wrong and ends with the conclusion that we ourselves are wrong. And because all of us fall short of God's glory, we are all vulnerable to shame. In some cases, someone else's wrongdoing against us can cause us to feel that shame. Specifically, sins against the body that other people commit against us can cause, give rise to this feeling of shame. Something must be wrong with me, even when we have done nothing wrong ourselves. And this is the type of shame that Jesus himself endured on the cross as people beat and abused him. He endured the shame, that kind of shame. But all too often, it is something that we arises from something we ourselves have done or have failed to do that causes shame to well up in us. And ironically, the more that we value an idea ideal or a virtue, the more profound our shame is when we fail to meet that. So it is counterintuitive, then, that the cure for shame, then, is to run to Jesus and abide in him, because Jesus is the one person in all of history who never did wrong. Normally, when I am ashamed, I don't want to be seen by anyone much less by the only human being who ever lived. But the word of the Lord is peace and hope and wisdom for us this morning. Jesus Christ is harmless and innocent, yet he endured the shame of the cross so that we might draw near to him, abide in him, and take shelter in his righteousness. Start living into that hope, that sure hope of being made perfect when we see him. I pray that whenever and wherever and however shame overtakes you, you will remember this sort of arc of truth summarized in these few verses in 1 John. When Jesus appeared for the first time 2,000 years ago, he destroyed the power of sin so that it no longer rules over us. Sin and shame do not have the power to rule over us anymore. John speaks directly to this in verse 5. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. He came to take away our sin and shame. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil— And with this word destroy, it's as if sin were an alligator that had us grasped in its clutches. And we can't, no matter how hard we struggle, we can never pull free. When Jesus appeared the first time, he broke the jaw of sin so that it no longer has the power to hold us. And then when Jesus appears the second time, when he will greet us, blazing in the purity of his holiness, we will be purified from every last lingering bit, every whiff of sin, and become holy as he is holy. And in the in-between times, between the first and second appearing of our dear Savior, the word of God to us is this. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The marvelous love of the Father at work in us through the saving acts of Jesus defines the past, the present, and the future of all who abide in him. May the peace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.